we are going through a short series this summer looking at what's known as the five solos of the Reformation. And the reason we're doing that is because this year marks the 500th anniversary of the start of the Protestant Reformation, and we're reflecting on some of the doctrines that emerged during that movement. And one of the reasons why we're doing that is because we acknowledge that churches don't exist in a vacuum. What we believe, what we teach, what we confess uh, is not simply something that we invented ourselves, but we lean upon people of history, believers of history. And so what we're doing is we're kind of reflecting on the tradition that our particular church, Good News Church, comes out of, which is the Protestant Reformation. And so we're looking at these five sola statements, which all happen to be in Latin. And they're uh, sola fide, which means by faith alone, sola gratia, by grace alone. Today we're looking at solus Christus, which means through Christ alone. Uh, I believe when I get back, we'll continue with sola scriptura, scripture alone, and then soli deo gloria, which means for the glory of God alone. Those are the five statements. Now, today we're looking at solus Christus, Christ alone. And uh, I think I heard this comment before, but isn't everything about Christ alone? Why, yes, it is. Everything is about Christ alone, everything that we preach. Actually, all five solos are probably infused in every sermon to some degree. Uh, right now, we're just making it very explicit uh, what we're believing and what we're teaching. Uh, but this, this obviously is going to be an important topic, but let me warn you a little bit. This is also uh, going to be a little bit of a dense topic theologically. And so if you're tired and if you're not in the mood to uh, kind of listen to something dense, uh, I encourage you to try your best and try your hardest to, to kind of follow along. But what I want to do is basically what we're going to do today is we're going to unpack what Jesus did and what he accomplished on the cross now, a few weeks ago, I said a lot of these doctrinal distinctions emerged out of a certain context where uh, there were people who disagreed with some of the practices and teachings of the Catholic Church. And uh, the place where this particular doctrine emerged was because uh, some of the reformers had a little bit of an issue with uh, the Catholic Church in terms of their uh, sacramental system. Uh, if you've ever been to a Catholic service, and I know some of you have a Catholic background, many of us have Catholic friends, uh, my wife actually teaches in a school that uh, is affiliated with the Catholic Church, so even in her school, uh, all the students and all the kids, they partake in Mass. My wife does not because she is not a Catholic, so she's not allowed to, and she's not supposed to, but uh, all the kids who are Catholic, they partake in Mass. And if you've ever been to a Catholic service, you'll notice, uh, especially in a Catholic church, in Catholic architecture, what is front and center is usually going to be the table, right? Because what is the central feature of a Catholic service is mass. Uh, contrast that with a Protestant church, and usually what you have, well, we don't have a pulpit here per se, but usually what you're going to have front and center in a Protestant church is going to be the pulpit because in a Protestant church they emphasize uh, the proclamation or the preaching of the word of God. Now the reason why the Catholic mass is so important uh, in Catholic theology is because uh, what they believe about the sacraments is that a person actually receives grace through uh, the bread and wine, uh, that Jesus's presence is actually in the bread and wine. And so as you receive the bread and wine, you are, I guess to put it in a crude way, you are literally getting more of Jesus into yourself as you partake. And uh, you think about it, when we uh, think about how do you get more of Jesus, we tend to think about it a little bit more abstractly. Uh, but in a Catholic, from a Catholic perspective, the way you get more of Jesus is you receive mass. And so you can see under that understanding, it becomes very important then to partake in mass, and it becomes a very important thing to do. 
Well, here's what the, uh, the problem that the reformers had with that sacramental system uh, is that uh, they saw that if that's the case, then it's the church, it's uh, human priests who end up becoming the mediator of grace. Uh, they are the ones who mediate God's grace to you, and uh, that's the context in which this idea of solus Christus emerged. Uh, it was meant to say this, that it is not any human priest, it is not the church as an institution, but it is Christ alone who is our mediator. It is through him alone, both in merit and in, uh, this might be a theological word, but in efficacy, which, uh, which means that Jesus not only merits our salvation, but he applies all the benefits of salvation upon us. And therefore, the conclusion is, believers have access to God directly through Christ, not through any institution, not through any human mediator, whether dead or alive, uh, but believers have access to Christ directly because, or to God directly because Christ is our only mediator. Now, if you didn't follow that, that's okay, okay? That's okay. Uh, I know that was a little bit dense, but I think the reality is we probably recognize the differences in traditions not by the theology of it, but mainly by the practice of it, by what we see. Uh, and so we notice that, <coughs> you know, maybe a certain church does things one way and another church does things another way. I think in our day, probably some of those differences are more attributed to pragmatism than theology, but... During the time of the Reformation, uh, worship practices began to change because of theology, because the theology was changing a little bit. So, for example, you know, one of the changes that Martin Luther introduced into uh, worship services was congregational singing. Now, I know some people may be uncomfortable with the singing portion of our service. Uh, I know when I was growing up and I was in youth group, I never sang. I actually just sat in the back with my head down while, <laughs> while everybody else sang. Uh, and if you're not used to it, it can be kind of an uncomfortable thing. Uh, that's okay, too. Uh, you, know, you know why we do that, though. Uh, you can actually blame Martin Luther. He is the one who introduced it into the church service. But the reason why he introduced it into the church service is because up until then, the singing would primarily be done by the priest. And it is as if the priest is singing to God on behalf of the congregation. And because of these changes in theology, Martin Luther said, hey, you know what? The congregation, because Christ is our only mediator, the congregation should be the one to sing directly to God. And so in his worship services, he began to instill congregational singing. I heard from Fred, right, who's, who's studying uh, church history for his Ph.D., I heard Martin Luther actually used to yell at people uh, to sing more <laughs> if they didn't sing. <laughs> Maybe that's a little bit over the top, right? Uh, but it was something that was very important to him. And, uh, you know, today was a wonderful day, I think, of, of congregational singing. Our, our congregation is not always like that. Uh, can you just imagine uh, maybe our brother Peter uh, saying, hey, sing, sing, sing. <laughs> That's what Martin Luther would be doing. But because his theology shaped his understanding of who we are as believers in terms of the access that we have to God. That means that not only can we sing to God directly in worship, it means we can also pray directly to God and confess directly to God without any kind of human mediator. Now, that's all I'm going to say about Solus Christus as it relates to the Catholic tradition, uh, because I do actually think Solus Christus is even more important, perhaps, uh, in our modern context, and perhaps a little bit more controversial in our modern context. Because if you say to somebody, um, especially in a secular context, uh, if you say to somebody, you know, 
one, a person is saved by faith alone, they might say, okay. If you say a person is saved by grace alone, they might say, okay. But then if you say a person is saved through Christ alone, then uh, they might have a problem because it sounds very exclusive, right? What about other faiths? What about other religions? What about other gods that other people worship? Uh, aren't there many paths to salvation? How can you as a Christian say Christ alone? That sounds so exclusive. So there is a sense in which this is a doctrine that is very relevant to the modern context and a little bit offensive to the modern context. What I want to do today is we're going to look at this passage in 1 Timothy, which uh, ironically is a passage where Paul's giving instructions concerning public worship. And what I want to do today is uh, look at solus Christus and what it means, and then I want to draw some implications for what that means uh, for our lives. Uh, if you take this wide-angle view of what this passage is saying, it starts off by urging prayer in the beginning, and then starting in verse 5, it gives the impetus for prayer, and it says this, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. What we're going to do is we're going to focus and hone in on that verse in verse 5, and then we're going to kind of step back and look at the implications of what that means, especially as it comes to our prayer lives. Uh, there's this podcast that uh, I subscribe to, but honestly I don't listen to, called How Stuff Works. Uh, this message is going to be a little bit like that, okay? It's, uh, it's not going to be, be a message that simply uh, inspires you and says, hey, God loves you, but this is actually going to be more of a message that looks at the nuts and bolts of how God loves you, namely through uh, the work of Jesus Christ. So verse 5 says, there is one mediator between God and men, and Jesus is our mediator. Now, what does that mean that Jesus is our mediator? You know, when I was in middle school, uh, my school, they created this role for students, and they called, this is, this is how I was introduced to the term or the concept mediator, but they created a role for students called mediators, and uh, they would work in conjunction with the guidance counselor's office. And basically what a mediator would have to do is if there were two students who had a conflict, then the student mediator would kind of be involved in trying to resolve that conflict. And I, I don't think middle schoolers are necessarily going to be super effective in that. I think it was more of a pedagogical tool to uh, teach uh, young people to kind of get involved and help resolve uh, conflict. But basically what, uh, what, they, what we would have to do as a mediator is we would try to bring peace to two different parties who were in alienation to one another. There's mediators in other parts of life as well, right? Sometimes a court may assign a mediator to try to resolve a conflict or a dispute between two opposing parties. Sometimes you need a mediator to resolve a conflict between two coworkers, or sometimes you need a mediator to resolve a conflict even between a husband and a wife. A mediator is somebody who tries to uh, bring about peace between two parties who are alienated due to some kind of conflict. And in that sense, Jesus' role as a mediator, mediator is to do exactly that, to bring peace between a relationship that has been alienated, not because of God, though, but because of our sin between God and humanity. But in order to understand how Jesus functions as a mediator, we also have to understand what, uh, what a priest is. Uh, and in order to understand that, we, we actually have to go back to the Old Testament and look at why God instituted the office of priest. Now Hebrews 5.1 says this, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So you hear that. One of the reasons why God establishes priests is so that someone could represent 
men or humanity before God. And therefore, priests would be the ones to offer gifts. Priests would be the ones to offer sacrifices to God. Now, why offer sacrifices to God? It was kind of a way to atone for guilt, to atone for sin. But why sacrifices? Uh, in a sense, you can think about it this way. It was like uh, the priest pleading a case to God. And through this animal sacrifice kind of saying, God, would you withhold your judgment from your people and instead pour it out upon this animal sacrifice so that your sense of justice would be satisfied by the blood of these animals. And when you read the book of Hebrews, it tells us a great deal about why Jesus is not only the better high priest, but he is the ultimate high priest. Because the problem with the Old Testament or, or under that system is that a priest would have to make sacrifices over and over and over again in order to atone for sin. And even then, God's justice would never really be fully satisfied. And it's kind of like if you had to maybe hire an attorney over and over and over again to continually plead your uh, case over and over and over again. But even more than that, because priests also, ha also had to atone for their own sin, it would actually be like hiring a priest who would have to, who would have to plead their own case while also pleading your case over and over and over again. So you see the problem or the deficiency in this uh, Old Testament Levitical sacrificial system. The priests, they would have to make sacrifices over and over again because the God's justice would never really be fully satisfied. Now Jesus comes, and Jesus is a game changer. Uh, when he comes, literally, he transforms the entire system. Why? Because he is the only one he is the only one who can plead the perfect case that would fully satisfy God's justice. And how does he do that? He presents his case by offering himself as a sacrifice, by offering his blood, by dying upon the cross. Now, when you think of this idea that Jesus is our advocate, that Jesus represents us, that Jesus uh, pleads our case on our behalf before God. What exactly is it that you envision? Uh, do you envision Jesus saying something like this? Yeah, I know so-and-so sinned again, but come on, God, right? Give them one more chance. They'll do better next time. Is that kind of how we think about the idea that Jesus is our advocate? Because if that's how we envision it, and if that's how we envision what it means that Christ intercedes on our behalf, then we don't really understand the power of what Jesus did and accomplished upon the cross. Because he is not simply appealing to God's kindness or generosity, although God is kind and God is generous, but he is actually appealing to something a little bit more concrete than that. Jesus is appealing to God's justice. God's justice. And he's saying this. Here is the case I plead. I offer myself as a penalty for sin, that your vengeance, your wrath, your anger, your punishment might be fully poured out and exhausted upon myself so that justice would be fully satisfied so that you would let your people uh, approach you, approach the throne of grace with confidence. And you see, that's a little bit more concrete, and that's a little bit deeper in terms of uh, what the work of Christ really accomplished for us. 
And so you see, when Jesus presents a case on our behalf, when he is our advocate, when he is our mediator, he presents a case that is actually airtight because it's not based on you or me. It's not based on our ability. It's not based on our merits, but it is solely based upon the merits of Jesus Christ. You see, we, we also have to understand that Jesus, he is one of a kind, one of a kind in a very important way. Uh, you ever hear the principle in the Old Testament, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth? And perhaps some people ask, why, why, do, why does Jesus kind of change that? Why do Christians kind of ignore that idea, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? Right? It's an idea that says if somebody takes out your eye, then in order for justice to be met, uh, that person, the offender, their eye ought to be taken out as well. In the, but in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus abrogates that and he says this, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Very popular uh, quote, verse to quote, I think, even if uh, from someone who doesn't believe in Christianity per se. But I also think it's quoted so frequently because it's, it's nice to hear, but it's quoted without understanding the uh, radical nature of what Jesus is actually saying, especially in this context. Because if you're a Jewish person and you're familiar with the law, and if you're familiar with what the Torah says about eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, it sounds like what Jesus is doing is he's kind of saying that doesn't matter. Ignore that. Ignore the law. But that's not actually what Jesus is saying. And we have to ask ourselves what accounts for the change. And really what accounts for the change is that it's not that God is no longer concerned about justice, but it's that his arrival signals this new age of the kingdom, which from his perspective and in his particular time is anticipating the work that he would accomplish on the cross in the fulfillment of justice as he dies upon the cross. And so if eye for an eye reflects God's justice, then what does that mean? It means animal sacrifices are ultimately going to be insufficient. For that matter, it also means this, that even our lives are not going to be sufficient in order to satisfy God's justice. Why? Because God is qualitatively different than us. You know, there's a story uh, that I saw a few months ago, I think in April, and uh, apparently this Australian man, he had to have his leg amputated because uh, a spider bit him. Uh, and I actually read the story a little bit in detail and I think they were saying the ultimate cause wasn't the spider bite, but the spider bite basically triggered this infection due to another condition that he had. But it resulted in this man's leg being amputated. <coughs> now, let me ask you this. Uh, if it was the spider's bite that caused this man's leg to be amputated, would it be just to say to the spider, in order for justice to be met, let me take one of your legs, right? A little bit crude illustration, I know, but do you, do you see the point I am trying to make? You see, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, it presupposes or assumes something that there is, a, there is a qualitative similarity between the two parties. But when you have two different parties that are qualitatively different, then how then do you apply eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth? How do you actually reach a sense of justice? Well, you need a sacrifice of equal worth. You see why Jesus has to be that sacrifice. You see, Orthodox Christians have believed that Jesus is both fully human, but also fully divine. 
And the reason why that is important is because it means that Jesus Christ himself is uniquely qualified to offer a sacrifice that will ultimately fulfill the justice of God. And as one who is divine, uh, he is qualitatively uh, equal to God uh, in his person. And in a word, what we can say is this, that he is, he can be both our representative, he can be our perfect advocate because he was fully human, he can be our ultimate high priest, but he can also be the high priest who offers himself as a sacrifice so that we can approach God, so that we can approach the throne of grace. And what the book of Hebrews says is not simply approach the throne of grace, but approach the throne of grace with confidence. With confidence. Now going back to the difficulty that I think modern people have uh, or the trouble people have with Christianity uh, because it says, you know, the only way you can know God is through Jesus. The only way one receives salvation is through Jesus. Uh, verses like this become problematic. For example, in John fourteen six, when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Or verses like in Acts four twelve, where it says, there is no salvation in anyone else but Jesus. I think the modern person probably says, that sounds so exclusive, right? Why can't people be saved through uh, other faiths or through other gods? Why is Christianity so insistent that it has to be through Jesus? And it's not this. I think sometimes this gets read into it, but it's not that Christians are fundamentally better people than others. It's not even that Christians have fundamentally better answers than other people. Ultimately, the reason is because Jesus is a better mediator between God and man. Because Jesus is the only one who is uniquely qualified to be a mediator between God and men. Because he can identify with us and yet remain distinct from us. He can descend uh, to the place of being a servant and yet still be the glorious one who sits at the right hand of God the Father. He can be one who uh, shows us or demonstrates God's love and grace and mercy to us while also appealing to God's justice and without violating it. Jesus Christ is uniquely qualified to reconcile God and man. To say that all religions are essentially the same is a little bit superficial because it doesn't count the differences of what Christian or Christianity is claiming about who God is, the nature of God, and the person of Jesus Christ. You know, we don't, we don't even do this in the rest of uh, the areas of life because we don't say, you know, all attorneys are the same and all attorneys are equal. Uh, you know, there are probably better ones and there are probably worse ones. There are ones who can argue a better case and there are ones who can't argue as strong of a case. Well, we have this advocate in Jesus Christ and he is the best advocate that we can have because only he can argue or plead an airtight, perfect case because it's not contingent upon who we are and what we've done. Now, if you're a Christian, what does this mean for you? Here's, what, uh, here's where I want to go back to the beginning of the passage. I think it means two things. First, I think it means we should pray. It means we should pray. 
because we have access to God directly through Christ. That we do not have to pray through a human mediator, that we do not have to pray through an institution, but we can pray directly to God. And if you look at it from that perspective, then we understand that prayer is a great privilege, a great, great privilege, because it means we can commune with God and have access to God directly. Second, it also means this, that we should be praying for all kinds of people. All kinds of people. Look here. He says to pray for kings and all who are in high positions. Now, if you didn't vote for President Trump and if you don't uh, particularly like him, think about this. Paul is saying this in a time where there's probably this guy named Nero who was the emperor of the Roman Empire. Nero was not especially kind or good to Christians because he persecuted them and he falsely accused them for arson. Uh, there was this big fire that took place in Rome, and in order to kind of take attention away from himself, and I guess the rumor is that he took part in starting that fire, uh, what he decided to do is he, tried to, he decided to blame the Christians. Now, at this time, you have maybe, uh, and of course the dating is a little bit um, debatable, but if you have a guy like Nero, who is the emperor of the Roman Empire, and Paul here is telling Timothy to, to pray for him, uh, pray for all kinds of people, even people who uh, are not good to you, even people that you strongly disagree with. Paul is saying that. Why? And it goes back to this idea of solus Christus. We pray for all people because Jesus Christ is the sole mediator between God and man. We pray for all people because Jesus Christ offered his life as a ransom for all. We pray for all people because this is the will of God for all people to be saved. That's what it says here. And by the way, if you, think it from, if you think about it from that perspective, Christianity is actually a very inclusive faith. Uh, all other worldviews, all other faiths, uh, if you think about it to its logical conclusion, everything is going to be exclusive to some degree. So the question is not, is it exclusive or not? The question is actually, to what degree is it exclusive and to what degree is it inclusive? Uh, this passage, what Paul is saying to us here is God's desire is for all people to be saved. You can't be excluded based on your race. You can't be excluded based on your gender. You can't be excluded based on your socioeconomic status, your nationality, what kind of job you have, how much money you make, any of those things. You cannot even be excluded based on what you have done in the past or what you have not done in the past. The only thing that you need to do is put your trust, put your faith in the only one who can mediate between you and God. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Because only he can be your true advocate. And only he can he plead your case before God on the basis of his blood. You can't do it yourself. Even in our legal system, it's not recommended that you defend yourself in court. Right? It's always recommended you hire somebody to do it on your behalf. We don't want to come before God and plead our case and say, God, look at everything I've done. Do we really want to do that? Or do we want to lean upon somebody who says, don't look at what they've done, but look at what I've done. Look at my sacrifice upon the cross. Look at who I am. Look at my perfect life. 
I am giving my life as a ransom for all, and therefore absolve them. Pour your anger, your wrath out on me. Who do you trust? Who do you want to trust? Christian answer is trust in Christ alone because he can do it alone. Only he can do it. Salvation comes through Christ alone, and therefore, if you're a believer, pray with confidence that Jesus can be a mediator for all people as well, that he seeks to mediate between God and humanity, that all people might be saved. Let's bow our heads in prayer.